And so my sermon today is called Striving for Holiness in Church Discipline. And we're going to look at this passage probably in three sermons over the next three weeks uh, because there's just so much here. And already you're probably thinking, wait a minute, Nathan, you told me that this passage was kind of risque, kind of PG-13, rated R. Well, the truth of the matter is, is that the subject matter of this passage is really not about sexual morality. That's the sin that exists in the, in the church in Corinth. But the greater challenge and the greater problem that Paul exposes in Corinth is that the church did nothing about it. It decided to live in a state of spiritual adultery toward the Lord Jesus. That's what it chose to do. And so what I want us to consider this afternoon is the importance of a body of believers who have been, who have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ, who have been reconciled to God through His Son, who, has, who have been purified by His blood and made holy, how we should strive for holiness in such a way to honor the One who made that happen. This is His church. We are His church. We are the bride of Christ. And we need to understand how necessary it is. And the, the way in which God so orchestrated and planned and, and designed the church is that we would work together to strive for holiness. And in God's wisdom and in His perfect plan, He put in strategies and processes to help us strive together for holiness so that we are not left to our own to figure this thing out. He allowed us to live together as a community of believers, being united together in Jesus, and pursuing and growing in Christ day by day. And one of the ways that He has uh, structured our gathering and our being and our existence as the church is He has put in place safeguards called church discipline so that we might, when we slip and when we fall, be brought back to Christ or face His judgment. And so as I've told you, Paul, a faithful pastor, a faithful spiritual father, he is uh, writing this letter in 1 Corinthians. He is writing to admonish them and and, and very, very blatantly and very clearly, he is calling the church in Corinth to practice church discipline faithfully because they have failed to do so. And he is doing that because they are not striving for holiness. They are living in sin. And so in these weeks to come, we're going to look at three different aspects of this chapter. We're going to look at the need for church discipline, the picture of church discipline, and the practice of church discipline, all in regards to the purpose, which is striving for holiness. We don't practice church discipline... Because we want to be authoritative giants. We don't practice church discipline to tell each other what to do. We practice church discipline because it is the process in which God established to pursue holiness among His people. And you can see it 
from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It was just practiced a little different in Israel, and yet with the same effects and the same principle behind it. So today we're going to look at the need for church discipline. We're going to look at the first five verses. I'm going to be preaching today from the New American Standard. My first point today is this. We all know this. Sin cannot remain vibrant in the body of Christ. Sin cannot remain vibrant in the body of Christ. You know, God's sovereignty always has a way of finding out our sinful desires and our practices before His omniscience. We understand God's omniscience as seeing and knowing all that we think and do that honors or dishonors His name. And so starting with the garden, we're made aware that God sees all. And and although our first parents thought in those moments of temptation that God would not know of their rebellion which they displayed in hiding from God in shame, God still knew and was aware of their sin. Do not think for one moment that when God asked uh, Adam and Eve, where are you? Or when He asked Cain, what have you done? Do not think for one moment that the Lord was displaying some limited knowledge or understanding in His being. He knows all and He sees all. The doctrine of omniscience reveals that God is infinite in every way and His level of unlimitedness helps us understand His knowledge is without limit as well. Therefore, because He is infinite in knowledge, He knows all things in Himself and He knows all things in creation. Be reminded of Hebrews chapter 4. And there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Psalm 139, verses 1-4, through O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, You understand my thoughts from afar. You scrutinize my path by lying down and, and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. Because of this mighty power of God that's displayed for us and revealed to us in Scripture, we understand then that all of our sinful acts... All of our sinful thoughts will not eventually be found out by God. God is already aware of those things in our lives before we even commit them. I'm reminded of a time when I was a a young man still living at home, about to graduate from high school. My girlfriend broke up with me. I got really angry and I punched a hole in my sheetrock in my bedroom. And thankfully, I had a perfectly sized Michael Jordan poster that I just moved over from one wall to the other and covered that hole up in place and thought, I'm going to get away with this. And you know what? I did. I was married with, I think, one child on the way, and my mom called me one day and said, hey, I just moved your brother into your old room. Can you explain this hole in the sheetrock in your wall? I had to chuckle and laugh because in my ignorance and stupidity, I was joyful that I had somehow gotten away with something so dumb and and idiotic. 
But the Lord knows and sees all, and therefore we have to understand that as God knows these things, He is moving us toward repentance and holiness. When our sin is manifested, God wants us to move as individuals and as a church toward holiness as we believe and trust in Him. And He uses different circumstances in our lives to bring us to see our sin and reveal our sin so that we might grasp a hold of holiness, of repentance and faith in Him. You know, He uses circumstances to reveal what's within us, right? Maybe someone on, on I-40 cuts you off and, and, and their road rage reminds you of the anger and the, the, the frustration in your own heart for people who don't know how to drive as well as you do. Or maybe your own struggles of your children and the sin that you see in their life is like looking at that spiritual mirror of the sin that's been manifested in your life for many years before. Last Sunday, we learned that as believers, we play a role in helping each one of us see sin in our own lives that we don't see. So whether circumstances help us see our sin, people within our lives, like our immediate family, our children, the Word of God obviously reveals in conviction of sin and the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, or even brothers and sisters in Christ come to us and they help us see and admonishing us. Why? Because God is driving His people toward holiness. And that is a grace of God. God wants to providentially work in a way so that we might bring this sin to the surface and therefore work with radical action against our own sin. That's why sin among God's people cannot remain vibrant in the body of Christ. For if we are to totally and completely and perfectly reflect Christ in this world, we must live pure lives. Now, we're not talking about perfection, um, uh, day-by-day perfection. We will fall and we will fail. But be reminded, church, that the glory of God is illuminated and magnified not when a church lives perfectly because we can't do that, but when a church lives repentantly Striving for holiness when sin rises up within us individually and corporately. Because sin cannot remain vibrant in the body of Christ or it will destroy it. And this is the problem that Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul tells us it is actually reported that there is immorality or sexual immorality among you and an immorality of such a kind that does not even exist among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. Paul is disgusted. He's disgusted with the people in Corinth because he is aware by a report from someone else that this sexual immorality has begun to move and and exist within the body of Christ. Paul tells us that he learns of this issue because it was reported to him by someone else, some emissary from possibly the church there. 
Now, what we need to understand about this, and we kind of covered this a little bit in our overview, but this chapter actually gives us some very clear understanding about Paul's uh, correspondence with the Corinthians while he was away, and in, 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 in particularly in areas of dealing with their sin. So be reminded that Paul left Corinth, he went to Ephesus, and he moved on to other areas. And and it's believed that he wrote uh, this letter from Ephesus. And as he's hearing this report, he's not there, so he's hearing it from somewhere else. But it's oftentimes confusing because we call this letter 1 Corinthians when it's really not 1 Corinthians, it's 2 Corinthians. And you're like, what are you talking about? Well, go down to chapter 5, verse 9. Paul writes, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Now, wait a minute. Paul is already referring to another letter that he wrote to not associate with immoral people that he's writing in another letter about his previous letter. And so scholars call the letter referenced in verse 9 as the previous letter or the real 1 Corinthians. And then later on, Paul addresses another letter. So really what we have is we have the previous letter, we have 1 Corinthians, we have 2 Corinthians. And it's believed to be almost a total of four letters that Paul references in this, this, uh, this issue. Or, or excuse me, these uh, correspondence with Corinth. Four letters at least that we know of that he references. He references men like Stephanus and Fortunus and Archaeus who delivered that previous letter from Paul to the Corinthians and then took a correspondence from the Corinthians back to Paul. And in that letter of rebuttal, as we would call it, It's believed that that's where uh, the Corinthians displayed their greatest pride and arrogance against the Apostle Paul, criticizing him, stating that they didn't need his help or, or that they were okay in their own understanding and wisdom, which in turn leads Paul to send a letter back to them, which is 1 Corinthians, which deals with this sin. So in other words, and the reason I'm bringing this up to you, not only to give you a structure again, but to understand how long this sexual immorality has existed in Corinth. That he's already written a previous letter. It's traveled now to, uh, to Corinth. They respond with a letter. And then another letter comes in 1 Corinthians. And all the while, the sexually immoral situation is growing and brewing and breeding in the church. This isn't a one-time, I made a bad mistake type of thing. This is a clear ignorance and sweeping under the rug of sexual immorality. Church, when we see sin dwell within us, not come and go, not struggle and repent, but when it dwells within us, the Bible tells us that if we sin, 1 John tells us that if we practice sin, which means if we habitually live in sin, we cannot belong to Christ. If we refuse to turn from it, if we refuse to acknowledge the holiness of Christ, the the, the change within our own lives, and, and the responsibility we have to turn from Christ, 
or excuse me, turn from sin to Christ, instead choosing to dwell within that sin, we cannot belong to Christ. Because in those moments, we are choosing our former master to rule over us. And so this unnamed man in Corinth, his sin that had been addressed by Paul now twice at least, is referred to us as pornea in the Greek. It's where we get the word porno or pornography. And for the Greeks it meant, particularly it meant prostitution. But when the Jews became Hellenized by the Greeks, they took that word and they broadened it because of their continual stance against sexual immorality. And so they took pornea and they said, well, pornea means to us more than prostitution. And then we began to see the, the, the broadening of the, of the Greek word pornea to include other things such as prostitution, but also incest, extramarital affairs, homosexuality, even bestiality. Pornea became the key word of any sexual thought or act outside the covenant bond of marriage. And so for this unnamed unnamed man in Corinth, his pornea is defined for us very clearly as having a sexual relationship with his stepmother, living with her in a sexual relationship. It's unclear as to where his father is. It's believed most likely that he is dead. And therefore, because of his father being uh, dead, this son is now having a sexual relationship with his stepmother, cohabitating with her, and all the while professing to be a believer in Jesus Christ. Notice the stepmother's not mentioned. Because if the stepmother was mentioned, if she was addressed, then then it would be assumed that not only he but her were both members of the church in Corinth. Paul doesn't need to deal with her. He needs to deal with him, this unnamed man. And this blatant sin of incest. Now you're like, wait, pastor, this is not incest. It's not his mother. Or according to Leviticus chapter 18, which I'm going to ask you to turn there now, it's considered incest in God's eyes. Leviticus chapter 18. It's probably the cleanest pages on your Bible if you skip over Leviticus when you're reading through the Bible. It's not going to have any of the oil from your fingertips. Leviticus chapter 18 is clearly one of the most important passages in the Old Testament about sexual immorality and the definitions of sexual immorality. Notice with me, I'm not going to go through this entire chapter. Um, That would be for another day. But notice with me in in chapter 18 verses 1 through 3 how the Lord starts declaring first who He is before he declares what is considered unholy. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall... You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God. 
So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. Three times he identifies his name. I am the Lord. I'm telling you what to do because I'm telling you who I am. And what you are obligated to to do based upon your faith and covenant with me. And so from verses 6 down to verse 23, we have different categories. Verses 6 through 17 deal with the sin of incest. You can read through that on your own, talking about the nakedness. Do not uncover the nakedness of your family members, your mother, your father, your sister, your brother, so on and so forth. I found verse 8 to be very interesting not only because it relates to Paul's message, but it says, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. I thought that was interesting. The nakedness of your father's wife is your father's nakedness. Why? Because it's her body that belongs to him in marriage. So uncovering her nakedness is actually uncovering a, 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 a gift from God to your father. It is the very sin and the very uh, perversion of the marital bond where we commit sexual immorality. 6 through 17 is about incest, sexual relations with our family. 18 through 20 is adultery. Verse 21 is interesting. It it actually references child sacrifice to Moloch, the god of the Amalekites. And commentators argue back and forth, why why would the Lord bring up child sacrifice in verse 21? Most of the time, children were sacrificed to Moloch in the Old Testament. They They were literally killed by fire. They were burned alive as a sacrifice on the altar to Moloch or Moloch. But in in placing it in chapter 18 in Leviticus, it's assumed that some of those children were not sacrificed. They stayed among the temple in the Amalekites and served as temple prostitutes. Just another aspect of child sacrifice that not only goes against the created order of how God's made all things, but to think, hey, your options in sacrificing your child to this false God is whether that they would be burned alive on the altar or they will have to serve the remaining time of life as a prostitute in the temple of a false God. Verse 22 is the well-known and often uh, rejected passage in the Old Testament about homosexuality. Let's familiarize ourselves with that. You shall not lie with a man as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Our culture and the world around us tried to twist such sexual immorality as in, in found in homosexuality. They try to twist it and turn it as much as they can. They try to say it's not relevant anymore because it's in the Old Testament, and yet the Lord calls it an abomination. It always has been an abomination. It always will be an abomination. And then, of course, we finally conclude with what seems to be the most Grotesque of all things, although these are all grotesque in the eyes of the Lord, and that's bestiality. God never changes 
And he's clearly stated in these passages in Leviticus what he defines as sexual morality. It's disgusting, it's reprehensible to his holiness, and it does not belong in his creation. Matter of fact, it's an offense against the way which God created all things. And yet we have grown accustomed to seeing it, that we forget that it does not belong in this world. Matter of fact, we're so accustomed to seeing sexual morality that we forget that even unbelievers are not created to be that way. We think, oh, well, we're Christians. Of course, we're not supposed to be that way. But of course, they're going to be that way. Yes, they're going to live in rebellion against God, but they were not made to do those things. It's against the natural order that God has instilled in His perfect creation. It's a corruption from sin that led humanity rebelling to humanity, rebelling against God and His plan for sexual relationship to be enjoyed in a healthy marital relationship between husbands and wives. And that corruption leads to discontentment in marriage in the form of sexual relationships or impatience. And therefore, that immorality progresses to lust and the fulfillment of that desire of other heterosexual or homosexual partners, multiple partners, animal partners, and adolescent partners in this day. And all of it is gross and an abomination to God. And so Paul addresses this. What is this doing in the church? How is this having a vibrant place? How is this camped out in the church? A place that's supposed to represent the holiness of Christ. So let me admonish you, church. Let me admonish you this morning to flee sexual perversion and immorality. We're going to get to that passage in the, at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So we'll have to send the kids out again in that way. But the, the, the point is still the same. The overarching response to sinfulness in this passage in, in Leviticus chapter 18 and the overarching response in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is to put it away. Leviticus 18 verse 19 or 29 For whoever does any of these abominations those person who do so shall be cut off from among their people. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 5 Paul says I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Verse 7 of chapter 5. Clean out the old leaven so that you may not be a lump just as you are in fact unleavened. Verse 12 or excuse me, verse 13. But those who are outside God judges, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Three different ways in conjunction with the Old Testament of a radical action against sin among us. And that starts with us personally, church. Let me admonish you to flee sexual perversion and immorality. I don't care how popular the culture makes it. 
I don't care how entertaining TV shows are that you feel like you have to watch. If the warning on the beginning of that TV show says there's sexual perversion in it, don't watch it. There's no benefit or productivity for your spiritual life to indulge in such a thing. Flee sexual immorality. Cut it off from your life. Remove it like the eye that causes you to sin. Remove it like the hands or the feet that causes you to sin. Flee thoughts that encompass sexual immorality. Flee music that promotes sexual immorality. Jokes that encompass it. Internet pictures that expose it. Daydreams that magnify it. Companies that sponsor it. And friends that indulge in it. Flee sexual immorality. This is the message that Paul has for this church about this man. He doesn't even respond to this man. Maybe Paul wrote this man a private letter. I am under the impression that he simply is letting the church deal with it. Because this man is a professing believer in Jesus. So the first sin was this man's sexual morality. The second sin is the church's neglect of the spiritual well-being of its people. In January 2021 article, Michael Chancellor stated that 68% of church-going men and more than 50% of pastors view pornography on a regular basis. Of young Christian adults, 18 through 24, 76% actively search for porn. It's no surprise to you of the 700 victims that were named in a 2019 Houston Chronicle article about the sexual abuse that happened over a 20-year period by authenticated and ordained Southern Baptist clergy or leaders in Southern Baptist churches. Sexual perversion and immorality in the church covered up not dealt with, so that there is a slew of victims all across our nation that are reeling in the aftermath of sexual immorality that existed in the church, that the church was unwilling to do anything about it. And it's an atrocity for these victims and for the Southern Baptist Convention Such a great sin among the people who call themselves Christians because these believers failed to admonish others with the Word of God. They failed to hold people accountable and the Lord's great name is shamed. Can you imagine? Can you imagine one of those victims, one of the 700, reading that article? knowing about the sexual perversion in her own church by her own spiritual leader, and then realizing that 700 plus victims in that letter had also, or 699 had also experienced something similar in their churches in the United States where Jesus Christ is proclaimed and the Bible is used that talks about be holy as I am holy. I don't know what I would do as a Southern Baptist pastor to try to comfort that woman. She's not going to trust a single Southern Baptist church or church in her life outside of the grace of God. And it's because the church is silent on sin in so many places. 
We are silent on sin and therefore we are guilty before God for not caring for the spiritual well-being of its people. And Paul has written about this in a previous letter and they responded in arrogance and pride and now Paul is writing again so that the believers in Corinth can see and understand the, the, the depth of sin that is existing within them, that they are allowing this man to fellowship with them and sing and worship Jesus Christ while he is sexually immoral with his stepmother. And so as the believers in Corinth have allowed this man to sin or to live in sin, instead of admonishing this man, they are aiding and abetting his own sin. The church is called to shepherd and care for this man. And instead they are ignoring his spiritual well-being by allowing him to live in such a way. Therefore, they are being rebuked in verses 1 and 2. So you have this man's sexual sin. You have this church's negligence to speak against his sin. And look thirdly in verse 1 at the repercussions of that. Because this sexual sin was reported to Paul from an outside source, most likely another believer. And what does Paul say about this sin? It is so grotesque, it is so immoral, that such a kind does not even exist among the Gentiles. Literally, this immorality was so uh, well known in the church in Corinth that the church's witness was being polluted because they've allowed this sin to continue. It was being reported to him. People knew about it. And instead of a people living as, as, as light in the darkness, there are darker darkness among pagan nations around them. In Leviticus, uh, the Lord literally says to Israel, you're not going to live like the people in Canaan. You're not going to live like the people in Egypt. And Paul says to the church in Corinth, you're doing worse things than the pagans who have sexual worship included in their temple worship. Where there's cultic prostitutes that participate in orgies and sexual explicit and immoral things as a part of the worship of false gods. And your grotesque sin is worse than that. Church, what are we doing? What are we doing in this world that we are allowing sin to dwell within us? How are you, church, dealing with sin in your own life? Have you allowed Satan to have a foothold in your life with temptation to sin that has now manifested itself to sexual sin? And I don't just, and I don't, I'm not going to just pick on men today. Women are almost equally users of pornography and, and participatory in sexual sin as men. It's not a man only sin. But young men, let me tell you that pornography will call out to you. Adult men, pornography will call out to you. It will be everywhere you see. It's in our, it's in our high schools, unsolicited. Air dropped on airplanes. My, my sister-in-law's on an airplane. She gets a, a nude picture sent to her without any solicitation on an airplane of someone she doesn't even know. 
We have to flee. We have to turn away from those things that we will be tempted to see. It's not cool. It's not helpful. It is corruption and disease to our souls. And it ruins the church's witness. Therefore, sin must be amputated in the body. It must be amputated. Paul puts on his apostle pants and he steps forward with authority and power in verses 3, 4, and 5 because the church had failed to do what they were called to do in shepherding the well-being of their people spiritually. So Paul takes his authority. In the early church, the apostles had authority. They interjected here. Paul is interjecting in the uh, affairs of the church in Corinth because he is the spiritual father and because they have failed to do what they need to do. We don't have spiritual fathers in our church outside of the elders. We don't have priests. We don't have bishops. We are an autonomous church. So if failure happens among the elders, we're in a lot of trouble. That's why we as elders strive to live holy, to live repentantly, by faith in Christ. We would hope and pray that other brothers and other churches and sister churches that love us would see sin in us and and maybe graciously admonish us if we were allowing that to happen. But we don't have an Apostle Paul like Corinth did. But boy, the Apostle Paul came with a sledgehammer of the church's authority, of apostolic authority. Look at what he says. For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided, Paul says, to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul comes in verse 3 with the authority of his apostolic state or status in the church as he led and, 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 and guided and shepherded churches. Paul didn't have to interject himself. Before this letter, this first letter was ever written by Paul, the church could have stood up with all authority that has been given to them by the Lord Jesus Christ and dealt with this man living in sexual sin and it would have been a done deal. They would have followed in the processes of church discipline to seek restoration with this man, striving back to holiness or salvation in Christ. But they failed to do so, so Paul steps in. And in doing so, he skips the very well-known steps of church discipline and he goes straight to the final step, excommunication. Why is he doing this? Because he's seeking out the purity and the holiness of the church that is practiced or that is preserved in the practice of church discipline. So hold your place in 1 Corinthians. You're, you're familiar with this passage, I'm sure, Matthew chapter 18. It's the well-known uh, template or blueprint of what Jesus has given us in reconciliation and church discipline matters. This is not just personal, this is corporate. 
This is not just how we deal with conflict in each other's lives. This is how the church deals with conflict as God's people. Matthew chapter 18. Or excuse me, verse, chapter 18, verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. Let me stop us right there. Some of your Bibles say, if your brother sins against you. Right? How many, raise your hand if your Bible says, if your brother sins against you. Well, believe it or not, you should have a little side note or a notation there because the early manuscripts don't have the word against you. It just says, if your brother sins. So an earlier interpretation of this passage would not be about if Brother Adam, Pastor Adam offends me, I go to him. But if Brother Adam is living in sin, I go to him. Both are helpful. Both are productive. One is more narrow and one is more broad. So whether you want to interpret this as sin or sin against you, you can find a myriad of other passages that talk about our responsibility to admonish others who are living in sin as their brothers and sisters in Christ. But the step is, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. It's a private meeting. It's the step of grace and peace and gentleness. And if he listens to you, Jesus says, you have won your brother. So many conflicts, so many things happening without anybody else knowing. Behind closed doors, private conversations. Brother, I love you. I want you to see this in your life. Sister, I want you to see this. I want you to understand what the Word of God says about it. May I pray with you and, 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 and plead with the Lord to, to give you a repentant heart so that you might move forward in holiness. But that doesn't always happen. I've seen it not happen in, in many uh, ministerial situations. Maybe you have as well. It's discouraging. So there's another step. Verse 16. If he doesn't listen to you, take one or two more with you so that, Old Testament quote, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Man, this is just like a safety net for church discipline. Oh, well, you just have something against me. That's what it is. You don't really see sin in my life. You just have something against me, so I'm not listening to you. Okay, well, let me go get two or three other people that see the same thing in your life, that have nothing against you. Let's see if their facts confirm it. Now, if you have four brothers or sisters coming to you, and they're all saying the same thing, and they're all in agreement, and they're coming to you with love... Nobody's trying to be snooty. Nobody's trying to say, I'm better than you, or, or, or I, I, I don't ever sin. They're simply coming to you because the church should strive for purity and holiness. Because it honors Christ. And so they come to you and you look at them and you refuse to listen to them. Well, verse 17 takes us to the next step. It says, well, if they refuse to listen to them, tell it to the church. So now you make a public announcement. You make it a corporate issue. And why? Are you trying to shame them? No. Paul told us two, uh, last week in our, or two sermons ago about admonishing. He says, I write these things to you not to shame you, but to admonish you, to warn you about the consequences of sin, about the disgrace to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So the purpose is not to shame you. The purpose is to see the grace of God flow through you and you would be reconciled to Him, turning from your sin. So you go to them privately, you take two or three witnesses, you tell it to the church, and finally, finally, you have to do the most difficult of all, It says, let him be to you a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, consider them an unbeliever. Consider them an unbeliever. This is the process, the final step that we would call excommunication. What does that mean? Well, Paul is not as gentle as Jesus is in this passage. (laughs) Jesus says, consider them... And a Gentile or a tax collector, which in other words, consider them someone that is uh, not belonging to the kingdom of God. Because Gentiles would not belong to the kingdom of God. They would not be believing in Jesus, right? Even though Gentiles eventually did. And also tax collectors were considered greedy people in culture. They were serving the Roman government. They were considered thieves stealing from the Jewish people. Therefore, they were rejected people. Jesus is not saying consider them a rejected person. He's saying consider them a dishonest person. Consider them someone that is not genuine, not belonging to the church. And so considering them a Gentile and tax collector means consider them an unbeliever. Now, what does an unbeliever do in a church? Well, they don't belong to one. So excommunication is necessary because someone who once professed Christ, one who joined in membership with the body of Christ, now is considered an unbeliever and therefore they must be removed from the membership of a church. But Paul takes that step even further. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, for the sake of the purity of the church, what does Paul tell us to do? Well, Paul tells us that he is going to do something in verse 5. I have decided, or your, your, your translation may say, you need to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. We could say that the final step of church discipline is a necessary amputation. Removing someone from the body of Christ is removing them from fellowship and membership in the church. And I think this is important. Because if we acknowledge to someone that they have been living in sin and they refuse to repent and their grotesque sin is being celebrated instead of being repented of, and we are therefore identifying them as an unbeliever by the authority that God has given His church, then Paul is saying, deliver them over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh so that maybe their spirit would be saved in the day of the Lord. What does that mean? Well, it's an act of rejecting them in church fellowship and participation. 
doesn't mean they're not allowed to come to church anymore. They, by all means, need to come and hear the gospel. But they no longer partake in the fellowship of the Lord's Supper. They, never, they no longer fellowship with each other as believers. Paul tells us in uh, this chapter, later on we'll get down to it, that we should not even eat with such a one. Reflecting on the fellowship, it doesn't mean that we sever our ties with this person, but we make clear that sin is not going to be messed with among the purity of the church. That when we give in to, well, let's just keep our, our, our really tight friendship and, and let's just continue to hang out and, and go to the park and, and have each other over for dinner and fellowship together, what we are saying is your sin is not serious enough. But when we break that fellowship and we tell them why, brother, I I want to fellowship with you. I love you. I want you to know Jesus. I want you to understand Jesus. But you are not taking sin seriously. And therefore, I have to break fellowship with you so that my absence might be a reminder that sin is destructive. Because the church... Final step of church discipline requires a necessary amputation. And let me just remind you back in Matthew chapter 18, if you still have your place there, in Matthew chapter 18, after Jesus gives us this blueprint for church discipline, he tells us why we can do this. He says, Truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall, be, shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. What Jesus is saying is that the church has the authority because it is united with Christ. And we are not making decisions for God. We are making decisions that represent God that He has already made in heaven. Leon Moore says it this way, He says, Jesus is not giving the church the right to make decisions that will then become binding on God. Such a thought is alien alien from anything in his teaching. He is saying, sorry, he is saying that as the church, the church is responsive to the guidance of God, it will come to the decisions that have already been made in heaven. So God has given us this authority to diagnose and to assess for the sake of love, for the sake of spiritual purity, for the sake of salvation, those within our midst, so that if we deem that a person or we decide that a person does not show a healthy reflection of their own sinful life and a healthy repentance toward faith in Jesus, then we can so decide by the authority that God has given His church, the head being Jesus Christ, that this person no longer belongs to this fellowship and is considered an unbeliever. And folks, that is a universal decision. What do I mean by that? It's a universal decision. So that if the ABC church calls us down the street and says, tell us about Joe Smith, he used to be a member of your church, we will say to them, you should be aware this brother was a believer. He would not repent of 
habitual sin living in his life. He refused to listen to two or three witnesses. He refused to listen to the church pleading on his behalf. We have considered him an unbeliever. If that's a healthy church, they would consider him an unbeliever too. It's a universal decision. But over and over again, the first 10 years of ministry that I experienced, I never saw church discipline. And I could write down for you pages of blatant sin that I saw evident in the lives of people that not only were in the church, but who served the church. And it made me sick. And I vowed that if the Lord would ever by grace allow me to start a church or pastor a church, it wouldn't be happening in the churches that I served. Because it disgraces His holiness. And so God has given us this incredible chapter. This incredible chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 to point us not just to the dangers of sexual sin, but to the dangers of a church that neglects the spiritual well-being of its people because they fail to practice church discipline. But let's, let's end with hope, okay? At the end of chapter 5, verse 5, as Paul says, he's decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. What Paul means there is that he is going to affirm this man's state of unbelieving, his rejection of Jesus Christ, therefore delivering over him over to his true master, and his true master seeks to destroy him. That's what Satan wants to do. Destroy all unbelievers and believers. He is a destructive being. You can't look at a demonstration or an example in the Old Testament or the New Testament of demon-possessed people and think that Satan has our best interest in heart. That's silly. The fact that demon possession leads us to go out of our minds and, and claw ourselves and cut ourselves and do all crazy things shows us that Satan wants to destroy us. And so Paul is simply saying, I'm, I'm turning him over to Satan, destroying his flesh so that perhaps he might be saved. That he might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. This is our hope. That excommunication would have such an effect that people would be saved in the end. I'm reminded of 2 Peter chapter 2. Excuse me, 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Every day that this man excommunicated from the Corinthian church might live is a day of mercy that he might be saved. In seeing his sin, in seeing the evidence of no longer belonging to those friends and that fellowship, no longer uh, with people that would eat with him and fellowship with him because his sin is so grotesque and his sin is such an offense against a holy God that they rejected this man. They excommunicated this man. And they pleaded with him to turn to Christ. And every day that that man might live is an opportunity for him to come to repentance. And that is a mercy of God and the hope that we have in Jesus. So let me encourage you, church.
Examine your life and heart. Examine your heart to see if sin remains in you like this brother in Corinth. You know, by the end of chapter 5, Paul's moved beyond sexual immorality. By the end, he has a long list of these so-called people that are involved in churches that are covetousness, who are idolatrous, who are revilers and drunkards and swindlers. And he's talking about people in the church. Is sin reigning in your life? Have you allowed sexual morality or any other abomination from God of God to dwell in you? Whether it be public or private, confess this sin to God while you still live and breathe. And He will heal you through His Son. Jesus Christ bled and died so that He might gain victory over all sin. That sin does not own you. You trust in Jesus because He owns you. Church, submit yourselves under the authority and the helpfulness of church discipline. If someone comes to you about sin in your life, don't shun them or reject such an action of grace. They have come to you after seeking prayer, probably a little trembling, because they care about your well-being. So much so that they are willing to admonish you according to the Word of God. And this is a chastening from the Lord, not those people. And finally, church, when you admonish someone, do it with an arsenal of grace, humility, and God's Word. The Lord has not placed you in that situation to make you prodful, but to use His humble servants to maintain the purity of His bride. Let's pray. Father, You are gracious to us. And as we've failed You over and over again in so many different ways, God, Your grace is unlimited. And it's because as the Bible teaches us, You are full of steadfast love. And that steadfastness is undeserving. But we're thankful for it. And we cry out to You, Father, to... Do such a work in our hearts and lives, Lord, that you would expose any dwelling sin within us that we refuse with arrogance and pride to let go of. We pray that you would expose it for the sake of your your glory and your fame. Not just to have a pure church, but to represent a pure God. And we pray, Father, that in exposing that sin, we would be faithful to repent to turn from it. Knowing, Father, that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And, Father, for those that refuse, for those in our lives that reject your holy name and your holy word, we pray that, Father, even an act of excommunication And the process of church discipline might be the very thing to draw them in to yourself again. Father, we thank you for the gathering of your people. And we thank you for the opportunity to be cleansed by the water of the word and your Holy Spirit. We pray these things as a church seeking purity 
In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand together.